Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24? Matthew, chapter 24. While you're turning to this passage, welcome everybody that will be watching on the internet and those of you across the road in the coronet. And trust that this will be a time of blessing as we look into the signs of the times. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked a question. He said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Well, hopefully we can. And so in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master will put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present and those who listen, and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent vehicle to convey everything you once said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a timely word, pivotal in our thinking, our perspective, and may it be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus stressed that he would come, referring to his second coming, at a time when no one was expecting him. And it's a timely warning, so that when he does come, and we're taken by surprise, we should say, we ought to have known. Now, we don't know the day or the hour. But I sometimes ask the question, suppose 
if on the day somehow we were given warning that this day is going to be it. Suppose Michael the archangel showed up and, and said, I, I can announce that this is the day. He's coming today. How would you react to that? Would that be welcome news? And what if he said, I can tell you I have authority to announce he will be here within one hour. Suppose that were to happen. Would it sober you? Or would you say, oh, wonderful. Or would you, as the time got closer, it's 30 minutes, would you want to get on your knees and start praying, say, oh, God, help me. I don't, I don't know that I'm ready. Or would you be able to say, with John on the Isle of Patmos, because the last words of the book of Revelation were, I come quickly. And John replied, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I want all of us, all those that I could influence in my ministry, to be among those who could say at any moment, even so, come. But there are those who say, well, I, I'm not sure. I want him to come just a day. Many years ago, I was pastor of a church uh, in Tennessee. My first church was in Palmer, Tennessee, a little town on, uh, near Mont Eagle, close to Chattanooga. And they would sometimes sing this song, Wait a little longer, please, Jesus. We want time to get our loved ones in. And there's something sweet about that thought, that, well, you don't want him to come if it's your loved ones you're thinking about. I can understand that. But apart from that, if you knew that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the same Lord God in the flesh, who was taken up into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God and is coming, and we're coming today, would you be thrilled? Would you? Well, now, the purpose of this sermon is just to call attention to signs of the times. Now, it is a fact I think that every generation thought that would be the generation. That is, every generation of the church, at least the spiritual ones of the church, sincerely thought that Jesus would come in their day. Now, they certainly thought it at Thessalonica, because Paul had to write to Thessalonians, partly with the view that, look, he's not coming as soon as you think. They expected it so soon that we're told some were selling their goods and, saying, saying, and quitting their jobs. We, we don't need to work. He's coming any time. And Paul says, whoa. He wrote a letter and says, there are certain things that must take place before he comes. Well, it's possible that while John was still alive, they were still looking for him because Jesus said to Peter concerning John, what if he stays alive till I come back? And then when John goes to heaven, they think, well, now he's coming soon. And you could probably find Christians in every generation who thought, this is the time. And so we today here in the year 2014 uh, may think we're so sophisticated that we say, well, I'm not expecting him at all. I think we'll still be around 100 years from now, 200 years from now. And uh, so I want to address this question. 
what right have we to believe we're in the last days? Is it fair? Is it unfair? And I look at my own notes and uh, the, the points I'm going to make, and as I've prepared this message, I've asked, could this sermon have been preached 100 years ago? Because they thought it then. And I happen to know that 250 years ago, Jonathan Edwards, because of the flourishing of the gospel that we were, they were seeing in New England, it was now called the Great Awakening, thought that the second coming was nigh, or at least they were in the beginning of the millennium, because they believed in what is called post-millennialism, that Jesus would come after the millennium, and it would be preceded by a flourishing of the gospel, which Edwards was seeing, and so he thought it was happening in his day. And then in the 19th century, this, this doctrine uh, really accelerated, and, and at the turn of the 20th century, uh, it was believed so much that everybody thought we're right on the brink of, of an era to precede the actual second coming until World War I. And then in 1914, those hopes vanished, and the idea of postmillennialism was a dead duck from, from then on. Now, the point is, there have always been those who thought he could come in their day. I'm expecting it in my day. I'm expecting something extraordinary while I'm alive. You've heard me say it. The cry in the middle of the night, as pointed out in the parable of the ten virgins. I'm expecting this while I'm alive. It is my view that the second coming of Jesus follows the cry that wakes up the church. But the point is, I, I do ask the question, how many of the signs that I'm going to refer to uh, are unique? How much could I have said the same thing a hundred years ago? Well, now Matthew chapter 24 includes basically two things. One is Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, he actually said in verse 34, I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, that generation which was approximately 40 years, uh, was culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem, which was around 67 to 170 A.D. Jerusalem was destroyed, and Jesus said those words in perhaps 29 A.D., 33 A.D. So it was approximately 40 years, and Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, one problem that every Bible scholar wrestles with is... In Matthew 24, how much refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and how much refers to the second coming of Jesus? I don't think I am to go into details today except to say that it, it's almost impossible to know sometimes. Uh, but that said, Jesus sometimes spoke with intentional ambiguity. That means two meanings on purpose. For example, when he referred to the Holy Spirit, 
uh, take uh, John 14, verse 3. He says, if I go away, I will come again and receive you. I will come back and, 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 you, and take you to be with me. Is that the second coming? Or is it a reference to the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost? I will come. Or in John 16, when Jesus said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Was that a reference to the second coming or the coming of the Holy Spirit? It could be both of those things. And so when it comes to the signs of the times in Matthew 24, we do know that the destruction of Jerusalem came in the first generation as Jesus prophesied. So now I ask the question, how much that I'll be saying to you today could have been said 100 years ago? And are there one or two things that could not have been said 100 years ago or even 50 years ago? If so, it means that we are certainly getting very, very close. Now, we start out with what Jesus called signs at the natural level. In verse 7 of Matthew 24, uh, he said that there would be famines and earthquakes in various places. Um, we had them then in the first century, but I think some studies have shown there have been an east increase of famines and earthquakes in the last hundred years. I don't have the statistics, uh, but one could make a case that there is an increase of things like this. Uh, in Luke 21, verse 11, Jesus used the word pestilence. Uh, it's hard to know what the Greek meaning is, is. It refers to something like the plagues of Egypt, what's very hurtful, what is horrible, as in pandemic diseases. And one could say that the emergence of AIDS certainly would come under that category. That came uh, some 30, 40 years ago and is still happening. But then there are also what I would call warnings with regard to level of deceit, he talked about pr false prophets in verse 5. He said, many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Uh, he, he talked about those who would uh, come around and, and, and appear uh, to be so right and, and deceive many people that even the elect would be temporarily deceived. Uh, well, we've always had those. But I will say that in very recent years, you've got some very strange teachings that have penetrated the church, uh, and you'd be surprised how much of it has been taken in. One is called hyper-grace. The idea is, and this is very popular in the Far East, but churches scattered in Britain, in America, the idea is this, Jesus has paid our debt on the cross. The blood satisfies God. No need to confess sin, it's already dealt with. No need for repentance, already dealt with. Now, those who teach this know there are certain books in the Bible that would not allow that. And as a consequence, they have to eliminate certain books. And they don't like 1 John. And they don't want the epistle to the Hebrews. Because all these show it does matter how you live and the consequences for not pursuing your own inheritance. But 
the thing is, the hyper-grace teaching has, has crept in, and people, they say, oh, I feel such liberty. And I guarantee you it's a fad, and it's only a matter of time that you'll see a breakout of open sin under that kind of teaching. Another thing that has been very popular in some places is called open theism. This is the idea that God does not know the future, but he knows the present. And because he doesn't know the future, he needs our help in deciding what ought to be done next. And this teaching, some people love it. And uh, it first uh, came to my attention, oh, some uh, 20 years ago, when they were bringing in a man uh, from Canada who was uh, going to explain this, and they were going to have a conference. And I said, are you going to have other speakers? They said, yes. And I did something I never had done before, because I don't go around asking for invitations, but I did that time. I said, I want to be invited to speak at that conference. And they said, sure, we'll have you. Then about six weeks later, they notified me that they had other speakers and they would not be needing me. But I knew I would be the only one there to speak against it. It, it, It's to warn. I wanted to warn people. How would you like a God who, when you talk to him, you say, Lord, help me to know what to do. And he shouts back, I need your help. I don't know myself. (laughs) But that's what that teaching comes to. And that's not all. When this particular person who was open to questions at one stage in the conference was asked, if what you say is true, isn't it possible that God will not win in the end? And they said he looked at the ceiling and he looked at the floor and admitted that with that teaching, God might not win in the end. Who wants a God like that? But I'm talking about strange teaching deceiving God's own people. And so we could go on and on, but one of the most dangerous of all is universalism. And it's a revival of the teaching of Karl Barth. Since Jesus died for all and was raised for all, therefore all must be saved. So there is only heaven to go to, no hell. And this wouldn't get anywhere off the ground except those who have profile and a following and have earned respect, are starting to believe this. And so people are beginning to believe it. We're talking about a level of deceit is on the increase. It's happening in very, very recent times. Now, when I think of the global level, Matthew 24, verse 6 and 7, so you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And, of course, you could say, well, we've always had things like that. Agreed, But I wonder if it's hit you uh, how often we have references to what is going on now in the Middle East. You see, a hundred years ago, this would not have been an issue. But now, when you consider the Middle East, it is so red hot and in danger that even as I speak, anything could happen just like that. A couple years ago, We were worried about Egypt. A year ago, Syria. Now in parts of southern Russia. And as for Iran, uh, they're only waiting to get the nuclear bomb. They can't wait to drive Israel to the sea and extinguish Israel. 
and the Israelis are ready at any moment to bomb Iran first. That could happen even as I speak. So Jesus said, when you see signs like like this, know that the time is nigh even at the doors. Well, another sign was the gospel must be preached to all nations. hundred years ago, don't think that could be said. I'm pretty sure it can be said now. As far as I know, there's no nation that hasn't heard the gospel. And I know that my friend Arthur Blessed, who's carried across around the world, and has the Guinness Book of Records for the longest walk. He didn't expect anything like that when he started carrying the cross uh, many years ago. But he's been to every nation, nearly every tribe. There are just not many that he hasn't been to. And if no one else has done it, Arthur's done it. So I would say that one has been fulfilled. Then I think of the unprecedented moral decay. In Matthew 24, verse 37, For in the days of Noah, before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And it was a time of unprecedented wickedness. There were billions on the earth at that time. And the wickedness was so great, marrying and giving in marriage, marrying and marrying over again, that God repented that he even made man. Figure that out, but that's what it says. He was sorry. It was so horrible. And so he saved Noah and his family and destroyed everybody by the flood. Jesus said, when you see it like that again, and my dear friends, it's like that again. When I, I think of marrying and marrying over again, uh, the, the divorce rate, just now one out of two people getting divorced will, uh, one out of two people getting married will end up in divorce. And I wish I could say that those who have a Christian marriage have a higher level of promise. It's not true. Certainly in America, the same number of Christian marriages are dissolving as those that are non-Christian. These are signs of the times. And Jesus is saying, you can understand why it's going to be a nice day tomorrow because of the sky. How come you cannot discern the signs of the times? And the reason I preach this message is to have some influence that we might from this day be alert and knowing what is happening before our eyes. There would be a universal degeneration of shame. Take Romans chapter 1, where you have uh, the opposite of uh, getting better and better, but uh, here's what Paul said. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. So they didn't like the God of the Bible. So they they wanted to have a God, and so they came up with another God, a God in the image of man, and things became man-centered. And after a while, that God became a little bit too holy. And so they wanted an image that looked more like a bird. And after a while, that became too holy. And then they wanted gods made like animals and creeping things because they just wanted to be completely away from any idea of deity. And in America, in recent years, there's been a drive to keep Christmas in, uh, in, 
in line. And, and, and there have been those who would be afraid that we wouldn't have Christmas anymore. And 20 years ago, that would have been thought unthinkable. But now there are stores where they don't say Merry Christmas, it's season's greetings. And you go in and hear the music, make sure that there's no Hark the Herald Angels saying that maybe here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus. And then would you believe that even Santa Claus is becoming a little bit too holy because it reminds people of Christmas. They want to be completely devoid of anything that reminds them of the true God. And so Paul said, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then verse 26, God gave them up. Didn't say he pushed them, he didn't club them, he just gave them up. To shameful us, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned the natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And all of that happening in our day before our eyes, a lot worse than it was a hundred years ago. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 28, as it was in the days of Lot. A month ago, I preached on Lot. We saw how Lot got right in the middle of homosexual promiscuity and nearly lost everything. And so we're living in a time when homosexual promiscuity is so on the rise and there have been so many people in behalf of them pleading to accept them and not shame them. And it was one thing to have homosexual union and for a while they were happy with that, but now they want homosexual marriage. And who would have thought it is now legal? And because it's legal, when I consider the persecution, because this was another sign, persecution, the people that are being persecuted today, take Egypt. Are you aware of the persecution of Christians in Egypt? There is a move to wipe out Christianity altogether. And Christianity has been there for 2,000 years. I have a friend that keeps in touch with us, and she's from Syria, and her father was a major leader in Syria. And she says, do you pray for the Syrian Christians? When you think of those that are being persecuted, they're in prison. And yet persecution is coming right here at our doorsteps in a rather different way. Because of the legalization of homosexual marriage, we all now have got to say we go along with the law. And those that were against it just a few years ago now having to say, well, okay, we go along with it. And if you speak against it, you're persecuted and ostracized and laughed at. And it's right here. I'm telling you, dear friends, you may say, well, this could go on. Maybe Jesus will not have come for a good while. All I know is it's worse than ever. There will be a time it is the last generation. And the reason Jesus gave us this teaching 
is that we would not be found unready. I wake up every day and asking the Lord, could it be today? I would urge you to consider this. In fact, what I'm looking forward to, as some of you know, heard me preach lately, is the cry in the middle of the night. Because this is the next thing, in my opinion, to take place. But along with all these things, Jesus said the love of many will wax cold. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul warned of conditions, and he put it like this. He said, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, without self-control. You say, well, we've always had that. I know, but it is worse than ever. And the truth is, because of the love of many waxing coat, it has infiltrated the church. And as a consequence of that, the church is asleep. And according to Daniel, two other signs would be travel would increase. And when I think of travel, we don't think anything about it now. Tomorrow morning, I'm flying to Stockholm to preach there this week. And come back there, and a few days after that, I'll go to South Africa just for a few days and come back. Then to America, come back here. We're traveling all the time. No one thinks anything about it. And then there would be an increase of knowledge, said Daniel in chapter 12. When you think of how fast knowledge is increasing, whether you're a scientist or a computer expert, in just days, what was taught is already out of date. Everything is happening so fast. The question is, are you ready? Do you welcome a cry in the middle of the night? Well, I haven't said anything about one of the most important signs of all. And that is when Jesus talked about Israel. And this is a point that could not have been said 100 years from now. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what I don't know is, how long is a generation? Some say 40 years. It certainly was approximately 40 years from the time Jesus said what he did in Matthew 24 about the destruction of the temple until its destruction. Does that mean it would be 40 years from a particular event? Sometimes a generation could be 100 years, sometimes 50. I don't know. But I know this, we're getting so close. And in 1948, Israel became a nation. In 1967, Israel had it for its capital, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had not been in the hands of Jews or Israel for 2,500 years. And all this going on right before our eyes, we cannot say we have not been warned. 
These are signs of the times. And Jesus said, when you see the budding of the fig tree, this is Israel. Know that the time is nigh. And in Matthew 24, verse 15, he talked about the abomination of desolation. From Daniel 9, 27. Now, there's more than one way to interpret that. But one way, surely, is the fact that at the place where the temple was, Solomon's temple and the second temple, is now the Dome of the Rock. Islam has taken over what was once the most holy spot. And Daniel calls it abomination of desolation. Right before our eyes and tourists go and they take photographs of the Dome of the Rock, they think that's the Jerusalem temple. And they don't realize that right on the spot that was Israel's most holy place is now the Islamic temple, Dome of the Rock. You ask, how much worse can it get? Well, here's what Jesus said. In the event that there's somebody here today that you are asleep spiritually, Jesus prophesied about you. This is what he said. At that time, having just finished this discourse in Matthew 24, and you remember there are no chapters, verses in the original. It just kept running. And so he just said uh, he will cut to him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites because he'll come at a time he's not aware of. And then he said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil. The wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. There was a hint right then that the second coming wasn't that close. But now it's been 2,000 years. And he said... The church would be asleep. And that is about as good a description as I can think of to describe the church generally at the moment. The truth is we are all asleep. We acknowledge with our minds, yes, it's really bad, it's really terrible, isn't it? And we go back to sleep. We don't want to know. We're enjoying life. We've never had it better. And so, in the middle of the night, when one is in the deepest sleep, that's when the call came at midnight. Wake up! The second coming is at hand. I mean, close! And everybody woke up. And Jesus said, that's going to happen. And you're going to get a call. I honestly look for it every day. You're going to get a call. You'll know. And when that happens, people will be shaken rigid all over Britain, all over Europe, all over Africa, all over North and South America, all over the Far East. They will know this is for real. The God of the Bible is true. As for the church, too late to repent because the foolish virgins didn't have oil. They couldn't become wise now. They were shut out of what was coming. And even the wise, Jesus said, would be asleep. And so I have no reason to think that I am wide awake. Does this mean that, oh, R.T., he's the only one awake. 
I don't think that at all. I honestly, I'm sure when this comes that I will be shaken rigid. I will see things that I didn't know. Because, you know, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. You do things in your sleep you wouldn't do if you were awake. And I, I wonder, what is it that I will be so ashamed of? I don't know. But I'm not for one minute elevating myself above anybody here. I just know this, that the church is asleep. And I think theologically, how we've compromised. Uh, Paul said in the last days that they would depart from the faith and come up with doctrines that, because people have itching ears and they want to hear certain things. I've got friends in Florida who, they love a particular preacher. They love him so much, and they can stay home and watch him on TV while they smoke and drink, and they say, the thing we like about him, we feel so much better after we hear him. Because he says to them, worry? Don't worry. And just encouraging people to stay just like they are. And that's the way we like it. We want to hear a sermon that will just confirm us in just where we are. We love it. And yet, the doctrine of creation is now being shown contempt for. Would you believe how many evangelicals accept evolution as the way God did it? They're not denying that God created, but they are saying, but God chose to use evolution. And, you know, this is convincing. Until you read a verse like this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what, is, what, was, invi- what was visible. What is seen was not made out of what was visible. This means creation out of Nothing. But those who believe in theistic evolution believe in the eternality of matter, that matter and God have always existed, and that God just used matter. Wrong. God said, let there be light when there's nothing. And God did it all by his will. But, you know, we're coming along because we're not taking our cue from Scripture anymore. It's as if the writer said, by science we understand. And people are taking their cue from science and then going to the Scripture and getting permission from the scientist of what he can believe. You see, the day when we could just believe the sheer word of God, there are fewer and fewer who are prepared to do that because we don't want to look like we're stupid or we're fools or obscurantists. We want to show that we know some things. I know one thing. God has magnified his word above all his name. Psalm 142, verse 2. Read the Hebrew. Get the Hebrew translation. This is how much God values his word. And he will honor those that will stand by the word, even though they laugh at you and scoff at you. I am waiting for the day when God can say to me and watch him say it to you, well done, because we didn't mind being laughed at. And along with affirming evolution is the way the sexes have been blurred and, and the distinction between male and female is now almost put to one side. Uh, the feminist movement 
uh, 50, 60 years ago, uh, got its way into the church. And, and now you have the inclusive Bible, where it just refers to he, 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 but it's he or she or them or they. And uh, we just don't want to believe the Bible that was, as it was written. We're accommodating. And we have to be politically correct that we don't offend Parallel with this is the doctrine of sin. Would you believe it's difficult to find an evangelical that believes that the Garden of Eden was a place on the map and the fall of man a date in history? It is normally seen as a saga or a story not something that was historically accurate. And as a result of that, the idea that we are sinners, as David said, I was shapen in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. We come from our mother's womb speaking lives, Psalm 58, verse 3. This is why it's, you don't have to teach a child to do the wrong thing. He will do that. You have to teach him to do the right thing. You see, we're all born fallen creatures. Don't think that mankind, humankind, to use the politically correct term, was made as Adam was before the fall. No, Adam and Eve were the first to be created unfallen. Their seed, Cain, Abel, Seth, and and all of us are the result of sin in the human race. And this is why the gospel will always result in conviction of sin. A few years ago, since we've retired, I think about five years ago, I began to get emails from England. said, we hear a great revival just broken out in Florida. I said, where? Oh, well, you don't know? They told us where it is. And I said, well, this is amazing. And you can watch it on God TV. Well, we started watching it every evening. And... Uh, I listened. And after several nights, I thought, there's something I'm not hearing. And then when I realized that never in my lifetime have I seen such an opportunity to preach the gospel to the whole world. Because what was going on in Florida was now being heard in Iraq and countries where the gospel never penetrated. So I began to listen through the eyes or through the ears and watch through the eyes of someone who's never heard the gospel before. And what will they think Christianity is? And they brought on some person who had this prophetic gift who said, I've always said that stadiums would be filled preaching the gospel. And sure enough, that stadium there was filled on the night. And and it was heralded as the latter-day glory. And this is it before the second coming. But I just kept asking, but wait a minute. Surely, if this is last day ministries, wouldn't the evangelist preach the gospel? And I listen night after night after night. How many times do you suppose he preached the gospel? Not even once. Not even once. And a very, very dear friend of mine came to see me and said, RT, they want you to back this and say this is of God. I said, well, it's not of God. 
Well, but these are good people. I said, it's not of God. Well, don't say it's not of God. I said, it's not of God. How can you be so sure? I said, God would not raise up someone who's going to preach the Bible throughout the world using somebody who doesn't preach the gospel. Never once did he. The more I think about it, I don't think he could if he, even if he tried. I'm not sure he knows it. It was all word of knowledge. He could diagnose a person's illness, tell them what's wrong with them, and then he'd pray for them, and he'd say, bam, and they fall to the floor. And everybody said, this is wonderful. And, and for all I know, the words of knowledge were accurate. And for all I know, somebody got healed. But I know one thing. He didn't preach the gospel. I said, it's not of God. And then when they baptized people, they'd say, in the name of the Father and the Son, bam, didn't even say Holy Spirit. Didn't bother anybody. They just thought, it was wonderful. And a few weeks later, it turns out, the evangelist was sleeping with his secretary in a trailer right behind the auditorium. And now they all said, well, R.T., you were right. I said, why did it take his immorality to convince you? Couldn't you tell? He didn't preach the gospel. You discern when it's going to be fair weather, but can you not see the signs of the times? And then I think of the doctrine of the atonement. When we say why Jesus died, do you know why he died? Do you think it was an accident? Do you think things went wrong and they just nailed him to a cross? He said something wrong that offended people? No, according to Peter on the day of Pentecost, it was all predestined. This is why Jesus died. And according to Paul, the blood that he shed turned God's wrath away. And this is how we know we'll get to heaven. But to find somebody preaching that. I must close. At some point in human history, we will indeed be in the last days. We know that. How much worse must it get for us to say these are? You see, this sermon could not have been preached 100 years ago, probably not 50 years ago, in some parts not even 10 years ago. Yes, it could get worse. But Jesus said, when the church is in its deepest sleep, the cry would come. Do you welcome that? Or if you knew that Jesus would come today, I want everybody to listen to me. If you knew he was coming today, would you be thrilled or would you be like those who say, please don't, don't come just yet. And if you knew he would come in an hour, would you be on your face pounding the floor and say, oh God, I'm not sure I'm ready. Fill out this sentence. I would welcome Jesus coming today because I, fill it in. Go along with me. I would welcome Jesus coming today because I, what would you say? Have been a good person? Because I 
have done my best. Because I speak in tongues. Because I have joined the church. Is there one here that when you filled in the sentence, you did not say, I would welcome Jesus' second coming today because I have trusted the blood of Jesus. That's the only hope. And when you've got the blood of Jesus sprinkled on you, that is your assurance that you're ready. Are you? Would you be willing to pray this prayer if, in fact, you know you haven't been ready, but you want to be? I want you to pray this prayer right now. Don't need to say it out loud. God will see you. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit. As best as I know how, I give you my life.